The Comics Course is an offering of the lectures from Miskatonic University's Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History, offered as a publicly available podcast. Welcome back. Class is in session. The Comics Course is running again, and this will be the last happy, upbeat tone you hear in this lecture, because... This is going to be sad. This is the wake. I am, as always, your ever adamant Professor Hamby with my ever non-commental T.A. Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. Yes, the wake. Um, I have to admit, I found myself tearing up as I read this. I found myself tearing up you just giving me a rough summary. Yeah, it is... You know, I'm not going to talk too much about my feelings towards the character of Morpheus. You know, he's an emo git. We said that last time. But he's our emo git. Exactly. And some of the characters in here, I think, say how I feel pretty well. Mm-hmm. So, we're going to start with the dedication. As always, we are going along using the deluxe edition of Sandman. This is volume five, and it is dedicated from Neil Gaiman to Dave McKean as a small token of thanks. I do not know what Sandman would have been without Dave as our public face, creating the covers, the typefaces, the design, all that, and my hardest critic. It was a long, strange journey, and it was the better for having a friend by my side on the way. And I will say, as someone who bought comics in direct market stores when Sandman was new on the shelves, nothing else looked like Dave McKean. And over years, you could see other people trying to emulate some of the style of Dave McKean and attract attention, especially as Sandman got really popular. The Wake. We start the wake in Destiny's Garden. A bird arrives as some kind of messenger, but not just to Destiny. Messengers arrive to despair, death, desire, even delirium, as they are all notified of Morpheus's death. Oh, one of the hounds is in here. He's panting. Don't look at me like that. I feed you. And they gather outside the city Litharge. Now, we saw the attendance of the city Litharge in quite a bit of detail during the reality storm where a group of them were hiding in the inn at the end of the world. Mm-hmm. They approach the caretakers of Litharge, and Destiny simply says, Our brother is dead. And it's clear the people of Litharge aren't really entirely sure about who the Endless are, but they are very deferential and are not going to mess with them mm. and are going to do what they say. Now, the uh, head of the caretakers, if you wish to call him that, speaks to death and says... I must warn you 
The catacombs are deep and dark. They run for many leagues beneath the city. There are maps, but the catacombs change like a thing alive and cannot be mapped. And this is in regards to needing to recover a vestment and some other things from deep in the catacombs for Morpheus's funeral. Mm. And apparently the Endless cannot go in there. Interesting. And they never explain why. So they need to an envoy. And Despair, who has never gone through this, she's the second Despair, so she hasn't been present for someone dying, but the others have, says, where do we find an envoy? And Delirium says, we make one. Out of mud. And they, mud? Right. Now, are you familiar with the Jewish tradition of the golem? I didn't know it was a Jewish tradition. Yes. The word golem is actually an approximation of an old Jewish word that basically means an unfinished man. Hmm. In fact, in the old text of what we call the book of Genesis, Adam, before he is fully made into a human, when he is simply the stuff that's laid out to become human, uh-huh. is a golem. Mm. It is God's art that transforms him into a true man. Mm. But in Jewish tradition, while God may be the only one who could create actual man, it is a lesser art to create the golems. Now we're getting into some mystical tradition kind of stuff here, Kabbalism and stuff like that. So take everything with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. But they put together this golem body. And you even see Barnabas in the background bringing a stick to help. They draw a heart on it. And each of them endow it with something. Desire gives it a heart. I believe destiny gives it eyes. Death gives it breath. Mm -mm. And it is the creation of these endless... They have to give it a name, and Delirium chooses the name Eblis Oshanahasi. Interesting. And I may not be pronouncing the second one correctly. It's really long. And Destiny says, You were created and gifted by five of the endless, but you can neither dream nor ultimately destroy, and that shall be your triumph in your tragedy. Which actually brings a question to my mind of, is there another envoy out there from back when they had to do this for despair? That's what I'm wondering right now. Stories to be told. Iblis, by the way, played a significant role in a sequel series called The Dreaming. That was actually quite good. Mm. And I've mentioned before, I think. Now, as he goes into the catacombs, Iblis finds that he intuitively knows the way. But for a source of light, Delirium gives Delirium gives him a glowing, floating jellyfish. And he ends up in that chamber that the old woman from the stories at the end at the end of the world was in when she was a young girl. Do you remember that? Yeah, vaguely. Iblis ends up in there, and we see the ceremonial sheets on the wall representing each of the endless. And as he walks in, 
that disembodied voice says, Which of them is dead? And Eblis responds, Dream. You have come for the Sarah then, in the ceremony. Yes, they are yours. Take them. Now go. So he takes the cloth and the book. Mm. Now, there is an entity in the series overture that many people believe is that voice. But it's never actually said. We do not know who the voice is. Nothing's ever been canonized? Nope. As we return, we see for the first time Daniel sitting as Dream. Oh. And he's a very different look, isn't he? Yeah. A lot more put together looking. And much more dramatic, where the previous Morpheus was predominantly black. This one is white, with an almost stone-like appearance of deep, dark shadows and highly contrasting lines. Very different than our Morpheus. And he even sits differently. Mm-hmm. Now, Cain has come to complain about Abel being dead and not returned. And he seems to think that he can push this new dream around and says to him, I demand an audience. I'm sorry, this has gone on quite long enough. I'm Cain, and this is my contract with your predecessor. With me, Cain. I am Dream of the Endless. Your contract is with me. And he tries to push Dream around, and Dream is not amused. But he does ultimately decide to just send a... Cain on his way by resurrecting Abel. Mm. Meanwhile, we see Eve in her cave with written above the cave in a turnium, which is a Latin phrase. I don't know if you know it. Yeah. It is usually translated as forever, but it means literally in eternity. Is that where the word comes from? Eternity? Yep. That is I, the Latin root of eternity. I had a feeling by how it was said, but I'd never actually heard it before. Right. And it means literally to be outside normal time. Mm. To be eternal. And in the cave, Eve is talking with Matthew. And Matthew, this has all been pretty traumatic for Matthew. He's, so He's been through a roller coaster of emotions in a very short period of time. Yep. And he's not sure what he wants to do. Meanwhile, we see figures from the history of Sandman falling asleep. Mm. We see Nuala, Rose Walker, Richard Maddox. Do you remember him? Oh, yeah. From Calliope? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Daniel's moving about the palace, which looks kind of more traditional and less fantastic than Morpheus's castle did. It kind of looks more palace-like to me than castle. Right. He resurrects Merv, who doesn't seem really aware of when he was dead. And then we see more figures falling asleep. Lyda Hall, and it says that she is under an assumed name in a cheap motel hiding. Sounds about right. We see the elderly Alex Burgess. And we see Robert Gadling. Then we see Dream using his emerald to attempt to resurrect Fiddler's Green, Gilbert, mm -hmm. Gilbert, who refuses to return. Well, 
Why? He wants to continue his journey wherever he is going. Mm. And Daniel Dream chooses to respect it. Then we see figures coming to the wake. Queen Titania Fairy. Oh, wow. The Angel Duma, who, I like this description. The Angel Duma, who is not exactly fallen, more toppled, perhaps, or even tumbled. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds about right. And then Bast. And Bast is old and scraggered, but she finds a boy dreaming and, in a sense, worshipping cats and uses that power to make herself young again before she heads to the wake. And we see on this stairway... Bast, Richard Maddox, Hob Gadling, Nuala, Alex Burgess. And notice several of them, like Alex Burgess still sees himself as a child. Mm-hmm. Hob Gadling still sees himself as that man he was in the 1500s. Mm. But this is their representations of themselves in dream. And they discourse as they walk, they talk. They have it confirmed for them by a centaur that the Lord of Dreams is dead, which upsets Hob, because he considered Morpheus his friend. In, in a sense, I think they really were friends. Yep. And all the world, billions of people, are here for the wake. And then they look up, and somebody says, what are they? Because standing thousands of feet tall in the air are these figures carrying stones and somebody says they are the family and we see the endless yeah it's the other endless and then as we go to the next issue chapter two in which a wake is held we see the endless on another scale building a bridge and this bridge will become a bridge that is large enough to span the souls of all the world. Oh, wow. And these random people talk and communicate. These are all the living souls. And maybe some things without souls. Now, Dream, back in his castle, can't attend. His family cannot acknowledge him until after the funeral is done. Mm. Interesting. And... As the castle staff leave to attend, because Dream tells them that he can manage the castle by himself, they should all go and pay respects. There's a discussion along the way. Iblis, in a way, takes the role of us, the reader. Mm. He's been newly created. He understands some things intuitively, but the world is a mystery to him, so he's asking what's going on. And he says, so who died? And Cain says, nobody died. How can you kill an idea? How can you kill the personification of an action? Then what died? Who are we mourning? And Abel says, a point of view. Now Cain gets angry and says that he told another secret. But Lucian actually intercedes and says, Cain, not today. No killing today. And this gets back to that point of view. Dream is eternal. 
the dream that is there is in a sense the same dream that was there before. Mm-hmm. But it is a different point of view, a different personality. I think personality is an easier way to understand it. Yeah. It is very difficult for us because they are a different kind of entity than we are. Mm-hmm. This may be kind of not right, but it kind of reminds me of the way the Doctor takes a new form from Doctor Who. I think that's a valid analogy. And, by the way, Neil Gaiman is a fan of Doctor Who. Oh. Uh, in fact, he said it was one of the greatest honors of his life when he got to write an episode of Doctor Who. Oh. He did write an episode of Doctor Who, which, by the way, laid the groundwork for Jodie Whittaker becoming the Doctor because he established into that episode that some a Time Lord that appeared male could regenerate into a female form. Oh. And back. That's cool. Right. Uh, it also established some other things that became very canonical for mm. Doctor Who. But this goes back to the idea of the emerald. When Morpheus said, you can look at an, a multifaceted emerald. You can look at one facet and believe that is the whole until you start turning it. Mm-hmm. Morpheus was saying he was one facet of the emerald that is dream. And Daniel is another facet. And so one facet of the emerald is dead now, so to speak. Mm. To extend that metaphor. Yeah. The actual emerald appears to be fine. As we go on, we see the muse Calliope, who reminisces about her relationship with Morpheus. And she says, I mourned the loss of my love a long time ago. I am here today to say goodbye to a stranger who once did me a good turn and to the man who gave my son the death he craved. We see all kinds of figures out here in the wake. I'm not going to go over all of them, but Matthew has the hardest time with it. Unwanting to celebrate, angry, Wondering if he should just be dispersed and, you know, die now, too. Aww. Matthew. He, he changes his mind later on. But Dream says that if at the end of the funeral, Matthew does want to go on, that he will honor that and let him go mm. and find a new raven. And then we get to Mad Hetty. Remember Mad Hetty? Vaguely. She popped. She's popped up a couple previous times, uh-huh. and I believe she's popped up in Hellblazer post Sandman. Interesting. And she says some things, and says she has quite a bit of text. She says all things. I'm going to try to emulate her patois here. Uh-huh. Oh no! <laughs> this is a joke. The respect I get as a tenured professor here is just astounding. So much respect. All things considered, he's a funny old bastard. Never quite as hoity-toity as he made himself out to be, if you ask me. I'd see him every now and then over the years, mostly at Old Compton Street, which is my particular venue, and I'd always bid him good mortal, and he's never too busy to stop for a little natter. And she goes on in this vein. Mm. But I think this is part of what we all feel about Morpheus. 
He was never as hoity-toity as he seemed to be. Uh He had these barriers up Uh for self-protection, which is a very human-like emotional mechanism. Uh But he was always really nicer than he seemed to be. Uh Not to say he couldn't be a right old bastard at times. I mean, if you wronged him... He, he came after you. Or gave him the idea that you wronged him. Yeah. But most of the time, by default, he was actually pretty kind to people. Yeah. It goes on... Excuse us, the hounds are scratching themselves. Because they have no respect... For literature? For academia. Well, Yeah. I mean, you're trying... I was doing a lecture on Beowulf the other day, and a hound just started chewing himself in the hallway so loudly that you'd think somebody was trying to drill through the floor. Sounds about right. I mean, I did drill through the floor once, but that was just to expand my office. Uh Uh-huh. I swear the city inspectors are going to get on you one of these days. Oh, you didn't know? Miskatonic Valley... Uh, is not beholden to the state inspectors. We have a special exemption license. The university, when it built in the valley, got one of those licenses like Disney World has. We run our own police and inspections and everything. Joy! Have you not ever wondered why the student dorms still have asbestos in the walls? I assume they just didn't care enough about college students. You are correct. But they still have them not because of that, but because they're not forced to take it out. I see. Yeah. So, both. Yeah, exactly. To be fair, when the asbestos was put in, they didn't know it caused cancer. Hmm. I mean, that's why asbestos was in all the buildings. It was just a good fire retardant. Yeah. Yeah, history. So, the elves talk, including Nuala. Uh, her brother meets his nemesis... Who says he's not going to do anything to him here at the wake. Because it's a funeral. Right. So he moves along. Titania arrives and says that she will not talk about her association with the Lord Shaper. Mm-hmm. And we find out that back at the castle, there's a griffin back again. Obviously the griffin was killed by the kindly ones. And Matthew thinks that it is resurrected, and it turns out it is not. It is a different griffin. And the griffin says, in a different style of speech than the old griffin had, I was hatched and raised in the mountains of Aramaspia, and a long way from here, far beyond the dreaming. The dream king sent to the queen of all griffins for the noblest and bravest of her subjects. And after certain contests of strength and wit... The honor fell to me. I hope I can be as valiant as the griffin who came before me. Your predecessor told me there weren't any griffins left in the waking world. Erismapia is as far from the waking world as it is from the dreaming, great lord. Hmm. So we see that there are these layerings of things that go beyond the dreaming. And the dreaming is part of this much greater ecosystem out there. Uh-huh. We get to Thessaly, who gives several pages of commentary on her relationship with Morpheus. Of course, because she doesn't know when to shut up. And at the end of it is crying. No. And said she would never shed another tear for him. And then Neil Gaiman, I think in a moment of amusement, 
because he loved fucking with people who insisted that Sandman had to not be part of the DC Comics universe because Sandman was much cooler than comics. Sandman wasn't really comics. It was graphic literature. Because comics are stupid. Oh, so he proceeds to put Batman, Superman, and Martian Manhunter directly in here. Oh, of course. <laughs> Joy. And Superman, who envisions himself as Kal-El, or sorry, as Clark Kent, mm-hmm. is standing there in as Clark Kent talking about the weird dreams he has. It's Batman's Batman. And and a and Batman imagines himself as... And this gets into an old discussion about the characters. Who is their real identity? Mm-hmm. And when you have this discussion psycho, in a psychoanalysis of the characters, the truth is everybody agrees that Superman is a face, an, a, a facade, an identity. Mm-hmm. He is Clark Kent. Uh-huh. He is the child who grew up in Kansas, raised by the Kents. Mm-hmm. That is the real him. Mm-hmm. And, but that Bruce Wayne is actually the facade. Mm-hmm. And that the real Bruce Wayne is Batman. That is his real identity. Uh-huh. And then, of course, we have John Jones, the Martian Manhunter. That's who John Jones. I did not know that. Who uses as his human alter ego, John Jones. Um, he is from Mars, and he shows up in his Martian form with some of his Martian dress. That makes sense. And do you know why he is called the Martian Manhunter? No. Because that was one of his two careers, was being a manhunter. He was a cop, a Martian cop. Manhunter is a term for a cop? Well, in our culture it would more often be used for like bounty hunting yeah that's why i was confused but they didn't really have need for normal police because they're a telepathic culture so crimes were very rare when it was when it did happen it was usually escalated to the level that somebody was going to have to be hunted down Ew, that makes sense right but the martian culture was interesting because they all had two jobs Mm-hmm. One for the function of society and one for their personal embitterment. And so he was a philosopher manhunter. Interesting. That's mm-hmm. that that reminds me that I know almost nothing about him as a character. Interesting rich history, and one that often has perplexed people because if you go back into the history of DC Comics, and I think this is relevant to Neil Gaiman's choice here. The great trinity of characters in, say, the Justice League was probably Batman, Superman, Martian Manhunter. Mm. While in modern times, in modern times meaning the last 20, 30 years, they've really wanted to add a woman in there mm-hmm. to not make it quite so much of a sausage fest. <laughs> Although it's not clear if Martians have sausages. Just saying, different anatomies. Yeah. And they're a shape-changing race. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's not really all that clear that gender even matters as a concept to them. Yeah. So, and Martian Manhunter, historically, was always represented as more powerful than Superman. Mm. 
I mean, he had burning vision like Superman's. He had x-ray vision. He could fly. He was super strong and vulnerable. But then in addition, he could turn intangible to go through things, shape change into any size, form, or shape, and was a powerful telepath. Sounds like he wins. Right. In modern times, they've tried to rebalance it a little bit by saying that he's strong and fast and has all of Superman's basic abilities, but not to the degree of Superman. Mm. To try to balance it out and have heavily emphasized his telepathic abilities and such. To be fair, those are more interesting. Yeah. But he has been the mainstay. He, until fairly recently... He is the only character that had been a member of every single version of the JLA. Really? Yep. Has Superman not historically been a member of it? Not of every version. Nor Batman. Wow. I nor know. Wonder Woman. I, well, I have a feeling about that one, but I didn't know about those two. Yep. Hmm. So, yeah, and at the time this was written, arguably these were still sort of the three main characters of the JLA, Wonder Woman had been reinvented in her own title post-Crisis on Infinite Earths. And it was really good. And she was amazing. But part of that was also toning her power levels down to a certain point. Mm. And the writing was excellent. But the writing had all been about making her well-rounded, interesting character. Not about making her somehow useful for marketing of the DC Universe. Yeah. I know that was a bit of a tangent, but below that, we see the Trenchcoat Brigade, although they wouldn't be called that a lot till later, but it includes John Constantine and the Phantom Stranger. Trenchcoat Brigade? Yes, named by a bunch of these sort of mystically inclined characters of the DC Universe who all wear trench coats. I love that. I know. It's great, isn't it? We see Hobgadling. We see Matthew return to the family. And they discuss the wake itself. And Matthew agrees to speak. Then at the doors to the bridge, we see the entirety of all these races. Not just humanity, but all these races show up. Wow, the angel's giant. Yep. And in the foreground here. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't want to read all of it, but there are some interesting bits to point out thematically. Including this scene where we leave the people at the wake in their discussion to see Dream hanging out with the animals at the gate. Oh. And he says he is the same Dream he has always been. And the Pegasus says, I don't think so. He said, I have served, I served Morpheus for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and he never sat around petting me. Mm. It is a, he is still Dream, but he has chosen not to use the name Morpheus anymore. He feels that that doesn't apply to him. And he doesn't have a right to it. And he is a different personality, a different point of view, even if he is the same person. And I think the Doctor Who analogy is a good one. Mm, Thank you. And as he's standing there, 
a red-headed stranger just kind of shows up. Mm. Oh, is it destruction? It is destruction. Whoa. Now, I do want to point out in the scenes here, uh -huh. uh, Rose Walker is sitting with her brother Jeb. Oh, Rose. On the right, Emperor Norton of San Francisco. What the hell is he doing there? Shouldn't he have been dead a long time? There's maybe an implication that maybe some of the spirits from the past that were special touched by Dream, maybe they come back. I don't know. Maybe the regular rules of time don't apply quite here. I don't know. What's, who's the, the robot-looking dude next to her brother? That is Darkseid, the Lord of Apocalypse. One of the greatest villains of the universe. Hmm. One of the most terrifying figures of all DC mythology. And he's just sitting shoulder to shoulder with Jeb Walker. That's <laughs> funny. So the family speak. Uh, Destruction comes in with Dream to the kitchens. And Dream provides him with food for his sack, rucksack. And they have a discussion. And Dream recognizes Destruction. And Destruction says, I wasn't going to come. And then I thought, sod it. I'll stop by and give you a little advice. You've never been inclined to listen to my advice in the past, but, well, things change, don't they? Yes. Yes, they do. Wise lad. And he says, you know, you could leave all this. It'll carry on all right without you. You can come out and walk the stars with me. It's astonishing how much trouble one can get oneself into if you work at it. And astonishing how much trouble you can get out of if you simply assume it'll somehow work out. Dream says, I have no wish to leave my brother, but I thank you for your counsel. It is well meant. And for your other advice, I thank you also. All will be well. And then he asks, will they meet again? And Destruction says, I wouldn't be at all surprised. Why is there a bear reading a book? You don't remember the shaman that cut off his shadow and became a bear? That's the shaman? He's back? Well, I assume so. Or it's another bear. How many intelligent bears are there in the DC universe? 732,911. That's a lot of bears. Bears rule the world. I thought it was they use spreadsheets as a tool. Oh, checks out. Okay. They control the spreadsheets. Okay, that checks out. But they don't actually want to be as known as in charge, because you know what comes with people knowing you're in charge of stuff? Overthrowing you? They bug you. That too. They want to be left alone. Fair, I don't blame them. I would too. Exactly. I mean, they are the superior species. They are. They're also cuter. Absolutely. By the way, did you know that evolutionarily speaking, canines and ursines are very closely related? Really? Yep. Huh. Bears and wolves may have a common ancestor. That's interesting. It is. I don't know how accurate that is, but I read it somewhere, and I choose to go with it as a personal fact. If you're an expert on biology out there listening listening to this and you want to correct me, feel free to keep it to yourself. I don't care. 
Meanwhile, Ray, uh, the Raven Matthew is giving his speech. And basically he talks about how, while Morpheus could be very distant and he could be very harsh at times, he was also Matthew's friend. And he misses him. And after Matthew, others come and go. Oh, and we do see in the audience Mazikeen and Lucifer. Oh, so Lucifer left the beaches to come to his... Well, he'd been at Lux before this. Yeah. Yeah. But he decided to come to the funeral. Others that come up to speak, Odin, the representative of the uh, Lords of Chaos, the ancient uh, Middle Eastern god of travel who helped them travel the mortal world, and more and more and more. Until finally, they load the sheet up on a boat that looks like it's made of black stone or wood in the shape of a swan. And he's laid out in it and sent out down the river. Kind of vaguely reminds me of Viking funerals, minus the fire. Well, hold on. As it goes down... We see it crossing through a river in China with a young child standing there. Maybe not China. It could be Vietnam or somewhere. We see it passing through what might be different points of time. Mm. We see Orpheus standing uh, at the end of a pier. Maybe he's in the under the Greek underworld of the dead and it passes by. And now has Orpheus's head at the prow instead of the swan. It passes through other places and now has, instead of a head at the lead and a swan, it's now rectangular with a giant ruby like he used to wear. Mm. And then it goes off into night, into the infinite dark sky where it burns as a star. Mm. And of course, in Greek mythology, and Morpheus is a Greek figure, although also passes beyond that, everything came from night originally, Nox. So he came from night and he returns to night. That's very poetic. And at the end, we see some of them gathered around and we see Lyda Hall in the castle. Of course. Where Dream says, Good evening, Hippolyta Trevor Hall. Daniel? No. The Daniel? What was mortal of Daniel was burned away, and what was immortal was transfigured. I am Dream of the Idlis. You fear vengeance, Lyda. We are no longer bloodkin, you and I. I am permitted to take life only to protect the dreaming, but I may punish as I desire. Ooh. I only did it for you, and you lost your son forever. Daniel? No. I am sorry. I am not Daniel. Are you going to hurt me? The person who is responsible for the death of the first despair will take the rest of eternity to die. Only then will his pain cease. And he had better cause for what he did than you. Ooh. You sought vengeance, Lyda. But that is a road that has no ending. Come to me. He kisses her forehead. You have my mark on you, Lyta Hall. No one shall harm you. 
Put your life together once again. Go in peace. Aww. He meets Alex Burgess, who he sends away, and the others begin awakening. Richard Maddox can think again. He's no longer filled with ideas that are overwhelming him. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And then Dream goes to dinner with his family. And that is the end of The Wake. But there are three more issues that make up the arc. And I'm going to go over them very, very quickly. The first one is a whole issue dedicated to Hob. Hob. He is in contemporary time dating a black woman, which is emotionally difficult for him because he regrets that he was part of the slave trade. And he knows that Morpheus is dead. And so he's not in a very good mood. Mm -hmm. But he can't really tell his girlfriend, who thinks he's 32, that the immortal king of dreams is dead. And that's why he's so sad. Yeah. And as they go to this renaissance fair where his girlfriend is working, he is just appalled. He hates it. He hates everything about it. He's like, this is not historical. <laughs> Loosen up. Because he lived through it. Mm -hmm. Although he has some rather painful memories as he gets there, including going to this bookbinder shop. And he's like, oh, your name is Robert Gadling? Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah. He's like, did you know in the 16th century there was a Sir Robert Gadling who was a bookbinder? <laughs> that was him. And he actually is presented with one of his own works that the guy is trying to sell him. Like, maybe this was an ancestor of yours. <laughs> He's trying to sell him his own work. Right. As it goes, he decides to go over to the beer garden. Of course. He sits down, and a waitress uh, wearing, you know, a corset and pushing up her um, visual assets... Leans over. Well, I mean, that's what they do. Mm-hmm. Judging me. <laughs> for trying to be polite and talking about someone's corset puppies. Ew. See, I could have said that. But no, you had to push it. <laughs> and Gadling says, what's your name? They call me Cordelia, my lord. No, they don't. I bet in real life you don't sound like that, neither. Anyway, Cordelia, I'm going to give you these two $50 bills. You, for your part, will bring me beer. And I never want to hear you shout, Huzzah, 20 pounds for the king again. Or hear anything else out of you. Don't call me thee or thou or my lord or any of that. Just bring beer. And if some white who fancies himself a minstrel looks like he's coming towards to play a gladsome melody... Then head him off before he gets here, or I'm liable to shove his loot where the sun don't shine. When I finish drinking my beer, you get to keep whatever's left from the hundred. Got it? Got it, boss. That's my girl. <laughs> <laughs> and he drinks and drinks, goes to piss, comes back. As events head on, eventually Cordelia shows up and says, Look, there's going to be a minstrel coming this way to play soon. 
And he's like, is there anywhere I can hide from them? I'm not in the mood for people trying to make me happy. And she says, well, if you come back in 20 minutes, he'll be gone or something like that. And he finds an abandoned building and goes into it where he runs into death. And death is there to talk to him to make sure he knows. Remember, death was there when he made the pact with Dream. And she offers to rescind the pact to let him die if he's ready. And he refuses. He's as depressed as he is, as miserable as this is. He still wants to press on. And then later he falls asleep and he has a dream. And in this dream, he sees this big red-haired guy who looks like a pavement artist he met many years ago. Remember, Destruction mentioned he worked as a pavement artist for a oh, while. Yeah. And then runs. they run into Morpheus and walk a while. Mm. Now, here's, of course, an interesting question. It'd be natural for him to dream of Morpheus. Mm. But why dream of Destruction? Why connect that? I don't know. Now, of course, one answer is maybe he intuited something. Another answer is... Maybe he's dreaming into one of those soft places with weird timey-wimey shit. That sounds like the most likely to me. There's another possibility that's interesting, of course, and mm-hmm. that while Destruction may have been juvenile in believing he could reverse his nature when leaving his duties, maybe somewhere out there in the cosmos he has discovered things the others don't know of. And maybe he can still find dream after death. Mm. It's an interesting question. Yeah. That leaves two more issues in the Ark of the Wake. I'm going to go through this one really fast. This one is in a brushstroke style of art, mostly, Mm -hmm. and is called Exiles, and is a companion piece to the Soft Places as a Chinese advisor finds himself in exile after the events of the White Lotus Revolution. If you're not familiar with the White Lotus Revolution, it was in the, I want to say 17th century, but it was basically an attempt by a bunch of people to overthrow uh, the Qin Dynasty dynasty, and reestablish the Ming Dynasty from several hundred years before. Although there is some debate because the White Lotus Society, uh, which was like a religious cult group almost with militaristic elements, did help establish the Ming Dynasty. It's not clear if they were really still organized by that time or if the current rulers just basically called all their enemies the White Lotus to characterize them all as religious nutcases. Mm-hmm. So anyway, this guy's son had been a member of it, even though he wasn't. So instead of being executed, he was sent into exile because he was dangerous. He saves a cat and takes him with him in the desert and gets lost where he encounters Morpheus. Morpheus at this point is returning back to his realm after escaping his imprisonment by Burgess. 
Oh, so this is the previous Morpheus, mm -hmm. not the new Daniel one. Right. There. Well, the, I will not use the term Morpheus to describe the new dream. Okay. He is simply dream, or I will call him Daniel as a point of reference sometimes. Yeah, okay. So this is Morpheus. Morpheus. And it is right after his meeting with the young Marco Polo. Got it. And he helps the guy get across the desert. And then he runs into Daniel. Ooh. Ooh. Soft places. Mm. Time is weird. And Daniel talks to him and helps him on his way. I have never quite been sure exactly what Neil Gaiman's intent was putting this story right here. That sounds very confusing. But the theme is death. His son is dead, and he sees his dead son there. And I think what this is, is this is Daniel trying to settle things. He remembered Morpheus helping this man. And... He is trying to do honor to the dead version of himself, Morpheus, by wrapping up something Morpheus had started and helping make sure this man gets out of the soft place safely. Oh. And so we see a form of continuation, something that Morpheus himself might have done if he hadn't been so weak at the time. Except where Morpheus forgets it, Daniel does not. And then we end with a story that shows just how damn British Neil Gaiman is. <laughs> because issue 75 of The Sandman, the ultimate epi issue, the finale, is Shakespeare. Of course. Literally, it opens with Shakespeare writing The Tempest. Now, remember, in A Midsummer Night's Dream, he said that he was contracted to write two plays. Midsummer Night's Dream was one of them. It turns out The Tempest is the other. But where Midsummer Night's Dream was written for the Fae as a gift from Morpheus, The Tempest is being written for Morpheus. Now, there's a lot here about Shakespeare's life. Uh, there's some beautiful art in here. It's well-written. I'm not going to go into it because thematically, although seeing all this stuff about Shakespeare is interesting, mm -hmm. it's not actually important to the story, except it does follow this theme of Shakespeare at the end of his life. He is a storyteller at the end of his life. Mm -hmm. writing a story of the Tempest about the exiled Duke of Milan, who is a sorcerer and has to abandon being a sorcerer to return to Milan. Mm -hmm. And Morpheus comes to collect it, because this, of course, happens back in, like, early 1600s, like 1609, 1610, something like that, which would have been around towards the end of Shakespeare's life. And he asks, why? Why do you want this play? And they go to have a drink. Interesting little tidbit here. Do you see Merv there? Yeah. Remember, plants have changed over time. 
pumpkins as we envision them now is not what they had back then. So back then it looks like in England, Merv had a head of a beet. So his head changes to match the uh, pumpkins of time? Well, I mean, they are dreams. So they're shaped by people in their dreams. That's a, that's a cool little detail. Yep. Also notice the portraits in Dreams Morpheus's castle of the other endless are stained glass here. So his castle also ref re reflects the time. Yep. And the subconscious of man. Maybe even being shaped specifically by Shakespeare himself being the one viewing. That would make sense. So they discuss the story and they discuss their contract. Shakespeare is concerned that Dream is actually the devil. He's never found out exactly what Dream is. And Dream says, I am not a devil. You're not going to hell unless you wish to. And he says, I did not give you this ability. I simply helped open doors inside you. Mm. And when Shakespeare asks, why? Dream's reply is, because I will never leave my island. Mm. Unlike Prospero. You live on an island? I am, in my fashion, an island. But that can change. All men can change. I am not a man. But, and I do not change. I asked you earlier if you saw yourself reflected in your tale. I do not. I may not. I am the prince of stories, Will, but I have no story of my own, nor shall I ever. But thank you. And of course, that turns out to be a lie, mm -hmm. because this whole series is his story. Ah, uh -huh, Sandman. And he did change, and because he changed, he died, mm -hmm. which is maybe the greatest change of all. Unfortunately. Yeah. And so that's how we end. The story of Sandman proper ends with William Shakespeare finishing The Tempest. Of course. And that is the final issue of Sandman. Was... January 1996. That was sad. It was. Now, I do want to mention very quickly, if you're following along the deluxe edition, The Last Sandman Story by Neil Gaiman, art by Dave McKean. This was not published in Sandman. I'm not going to go through it here. It's not thematically terribly important. It is amusing, though, in several ways, because there's a lot of meta-commentary about writing Sandman. Mm. This was written for a collected edition of the Sandman covers by Dave McLean. Oh. McLean? McKean. Bleh. And... They wanted to put a short Sandman story in it, so Neil Gaiman wrote one, and Dave McKean illustrated all of it. Oh. The only actual Sandman story he's illustrated. To make sure it went along with the covers. Makes sense. And so next week we discuss the Sandman, Endless Nights. Class is no longer in session. Class is dismissed, but if you need to talk to the professor, listen on. My link tree is at l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e forward slash prof hamby. That is p-r-o-f-h-a-m.
M-B-Y. That has all the places that I post announcements about new episodes, including the huge variety of podcasting services and YouTube that I drop them on. Additionally, I actually spend a little bit of personal time on a couple of networks, specifically Twitter, that's at Prof Hamby, P-R-O-F-H-A-M-B-Y, and on Tumblr, where the blog is called simply Comics Course. And I also, for some of my more narrative cast episodes, also post the transcriptions or notes from my podcasts. I'll see you around, and if you want to contact me, DMs are always open.